Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in the epilogue for Dearest Ones, the letters that Stanley wrote to his family throughout the war. It's mid-January of 1945. The Silver King is flying missions. The weather is cold. He's a bit bored because the weather is so cold that it's been difficult to fly. Stanley writes to his family for the seventh time in 13 days to begin the new year. It's January 13th of 1945. Dearest ones, no mail tonight, much to my regret. I guess I can't be lucky every day, and there's always tomorrow to look forward to. I do hope you've heard from me by now. I did receive a letter from Bill tonight, and he's fine. He said that his group has made him lead navigator. It's a good job, but I don't envy him too much responsibility for me. He's also been very lucky gambling. So far, he has sent $2,200 home, which isn't bad at all. With his money and my brains, we might go into business after the war. After today, I am authorized to wear a ribbon on my blouse, for I have received the air medal. It didn't come because I'm a hero or have done anything extraordinary. It comes automatically after having flown five combat missions. About all it's good for is to show my children evidence of the effort in the war. And it will also add a little decoration to my blouse. I would send it to you, but I think it best if I bring it home myself. It might get lost en route. I spent the day reading a very good book. All This and Heaven Too by Rachel Field. One of the fellows brought it over with him. I've also read God is My Co-Pilot. Reading like this helps a great deal to pass the day. I hope you're well and not too lonesome. I'm fine and thinking of you constantly. Please keep writing and I'll do the same. Love to Ida. I love you and miss you, Stan. As the king's son, I can tell you that Stanley never shared any evidence of his being in the war. We did build some model airplanes out of balsa wood. I can picture us at the kitchen table in the house in Northbrook in the 50s. But beyond that, and those planes. There was nothing. I didn't know a thing about the Silver King's War. Throughout the years of work, following my dad's war, his writing and heroics, I've thought quite a bit about why he never shared anything, other than it was clear to me growing up and as a young man and then one approaching 
middle age before the king died in 1990, that he was a very quiet man, self-effacing, very, very dignified, but not at all boastful. What I came to understand, of course, in this decade of work about him is that he saw his work as being a job that he had to do. He was trained for it. That didn't make him any different than any other warrior in the war, be he on the ground or in the air. Everyone had a job. And if he was successful and managed to make it home, he would move on from those years as best he could and become a citizen and a civilian again. As I think and write about the king in these years, I look upon his life with great admiration, really with a sense of awe for what he was able to accomplish, both as a a warrior, a husband, a father, a businessman. But I also think that he never achieved the greatness in his life after the war that he felt in those intense days and nights of flying over Germany. The intensity of the king's war years as I followed them through his writing, much of which was his day-to-day and not his hours in the air, were also revealed, as my mother described them, in the early years of their marriage, as a severe form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Stan, like lots of men and women who came home from the war, had serious and sometimes debilitating nightmares. Of course, like the king, most men never received a diagnosis or a treatment for their struggles with post-war life. Stanley's mid-January letters to his family were written by candlelight, as he describes it. After a usual dull day, for which I'm thankful, I'm writing this by candlelight, and as I write, I am gently sipping gin mixed with grapefruit juice. My liquor ration has become exhausted, so I have had to resort to gin. It isn't too bad mixed with the juice. At least the taste is killed. We came by the juice in not exactly legitimate ways, but even with a guilty conscience, it tastes good. Our lights are out due to the heavy ice all about. Ice has become predominant since the cold spell, and it succeeded in breaking the wires. Consequently, no lights, and it's awfully quiet without the radio. However, I shan't complain. I do hope you're well and not too lonesome. I'm fine and thinking of you constantly. Keep those chins up and keep writing. Love to Ida. I love you and miss you, Stan. 
Reading that the Silver King was not a gin man always fascinates me because I am a very serious gin man in Portland. We live in a region and an age in North America when distilling spirits has become a great adventure as a producer and a consumer. At home, we might often say, let's tank a ray tonight. For me, there's nothing like a serious martini. And in reserve, of course, for those dark, cold winter months, we'll drink blended scotch and single malts when we have the chance. I know the king would approve. Stanley's month really improved as he wrote to his family on January 18, 1945. Dearest ones, I can truthfully call this night as the one nearest perfect since being here. All total, I received nine wonderful letters. Nothing could have made me feel as good as I do at this minute. Of the nine, four were from you, Mother dear, and one from you, Dad. Also three were from Leona and one from Arthur Phillips. Indeed, it is a gala evening. Stanley relates, of course, that much of the mail is old news because it's taking quite a while for it to make the trip from the States to the European continent and then on to A-72. But he's also grateful for the most important news about how Margie's doing and that she's becoming a gorgeous child from all the family descriptions. The king continues to buck up his family as he writes, I'm sorry you had such a lonely Xmas. I feel very confident that it will be the last one like that. I shall be home before very long, and I'm going to make sure we paint the town red just as you promised. I spent a very quiet day reading and sleeping. Tonight we had a USO show which wasn't bad at all. There weren't any big names, but there were seven women, and they had us all drooling. When I came back from the show, I found the mail. You can imagine how elated I was. The king continues to write his grateful thanks for all the packages that are coming from the family. People continue to send cigarettes and razor blades, soap and candy, lots of canned foods, all of which he's very grateful for. But he's in dire need of additional stationery and stamps because, of course, he's been writing almost every day when he can. And he continues to ask for his first lieutenant bars. Although his promotion is not official on paper, he's been told that it's about to happen and he's going to need those silver bars. Stanley relates another quiet day by the fire and says that it's terribly cold out and he doesn't relish the idea of going out to be in it. And he does feel for the guys fighting on the front lines. Each time I think about it, I'm more thankful to be in the Air Corps. Thank God the news continues to look good. 
I'm following every inch of the Russians' offensive and praying nothing will stop them. If they continue to advance as they have been, I think the war can be over in a month. Stanley's optimism about the war spills into a letter that he wrote on January 28th of 1945. Dearest ones, I didn't receive a letter tonight, but something just as swell, a very sweet cable with Xmas wishes and a box of delicious cookies. The cable is a little late, but better late than not at all. This is the second one from you, and you can't imagine how much I appreciate it. You think of everything, and by far are the sweetest persons in the world. He continues, Just about now you're sitting down to that late Sunday morning breakfast while I have already had dinner. I can almost taste Ida's hot biscuits with real butter. If the Russians keep going, maybe I'll be there to join you before long. At this writing, they are 90 miles from Berlin, and I am praying that by the time this reaches you, they will be marching through Berlin. I would like to see them kill every last German there is, just as the Germans slaughtered so many others. I do hope you're well and taking care of yourselves. I miss you and I love you. And my love to Ida, Stan. Stanley's flash of anger and heat about the Germans is something that I didn't read much of throughout his hundreds of letters during the war. His demeanor home, of course, was generally calm and supportive and very soothing. He wanted to be sure that his folks knew that they needed to be strong for what was going on. And his January finishes very strong. As he writes on January 29th, 1945, Dearest Ones, I hit the jackpot in the mail tonight. I'm happy to say there are six letters from you and two from Leona, a total of eight. I don't have to tell you how much they mean to me. I love you as much for writing so faithfully. Although the letters are a month old, each and every one is a godsend. I'm only sorry you haven't been receiving those from me, but I'm glad you understand it wasn't my fault. If you recall, at that time the Germans had made their breakthrough. Consequently, all mail was being held up for much-needed supplies. Deep in this letter, the king drops his own kind of bomb when he says to his folks, Jane's having a baby girl comes as a surprise, even though you had warned me. I know it's just what Jane needed, and I'm certainly happy for her, although I don't care for the name. You'll find a check enclosed. Please buy her a gift for me. And as a special favor to me, please take it to her yourself with my best wishes and congrats. You know, by all rights, I should have been the father of that kid. Jane, the king's former girlfriend from Birmingham, 
has haunted his letters occasionally throughout the war. And he's flashing a bit more of his angst about something that might have been, but never was. And now, as the king finishes his January letters from A72, he's received another load of mail from the folks at home, and he's obviously thrilled to get the news that things are going well. As he writes on January 30th, 1945, Dearest ones, this was another swell night for mail, four from you and one from Leona. Two nights in a row like this is almost too much of a shock for me. After last night, I didn't expect any more for a week, but now I know I was all wrong. I'm sure you'll receive mine in the same fashion. The king, of course, is hearing through his folks about other guys who are in the war from the community and from the temple and the congregation. And he's happy for all of them, but at the same time, he's describing it as maybe I got in the wrong branch of service, still a second lieutenant after a year. However, I'm not complaining. I'm an officer, and that's what counts. I could very easily be in bad shape while now I'm sitting on top of the world. Of course, I would like to be home, but since I can't, I've got the next best thing to it. Yours and Leona's letters sound almost identical. You both complain of being lonesome. It's a damn shame you have to be so far apart. Why don't you sell the business and move to Chicago? We had a snow blizzard most of the day, and it's plenty deep. As usual, we spent the day playing bridge. Please keep well and keep writing. I'll do the same. Love to Ida. I love you and miss you, Stan. The Silver King's 14th and final letter from January of 1945 at A72 completes a month filled with great writing, plenty of emotion, some anxiety about what the world sees and needs to know, and hopefulness about the end of the war. And we have reached the end of this episode of the epilogue for Dearest Ones, the letters that the Silver King wrote to his family during the war. And this is part 27. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.